When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tennis Channel Inside In on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. Excited, as always, to bring you this podcast and super excited for the start of the 2024 tennis season. Kicking off down under around the world, we've got the Australian summer. It's a great time to start the tennis season. And we've got two great guests on this, the first show of 2024. First up, it's a titan in broadcasting, Jason Goodall. He's called some of the biggest matches on Tennis Channel's airwaves in recent years. We break down all the drama and the action starting the 2024 season with Rafael Nadal's comeback to tennis, how he's looked early. The same for Naomi Osaka, who won her first match but did lose her second match. What to make of Novak Djokovic being upset by Alex Dimonar and all the drama as the season begins. And then I talked to coaching legend, coaching titan, Jose Higueras. He was a Spanish player who was very accomplished, reaching a couple major semifinals in his own right. But his biggest mark was in the coaching sphere, taking over the USTA, really doing a good job from 2008 to 2014-15 range, working with the development of players like Taylor Fritz, Tommy Paul, Francis Tiafo, Riley Opelka. He worked with Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, Michael Chang. We discuss his coaching career and much, much more with Jose Higueras. But first up, it's Jason Goodall. This is Tennis Channel Inside In. Welcome to 2024. Let's start the show. All right, we're starting the 2024 season off properly. Uh, Jason Goodall here. Uh, we're in a lot of tennis. He's called some of the best matches on Tennis Channel's airwaves. Every time I talk to him, it's a pleasure, and I'm happy to serve as your warm-up back to get the energy going before <laughs> you call matches. But thanks for joining the show. Oh, great to be here. It's, uh, it's always an interesting time when we get to chat. And I feel like every year in Australia when we start the season and down under, you know, they're playing in Hong Kong too. But don't you feel like they add a tournament every year? Like we're just adding another one? It's been so difficult this year to get across, like, who's playing where and what size an event is it? United Cup kind of slimmed down version. Uh, what round are we in? And six groups plus two best lucky losers. It's like it's been really difficult. Then you've got the, the, the day difference commentating back here in, in the U.S., but I always get super pumped at the start of the year. It's always so great to get eyes on the players after sort of three or four weeks in the off-season. You're always looking, yeah. what have they added to their game? How fit are they? What are the expectations going into the new season? So it's a great time of the year. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and before we get knee-deep in what's happening now, you called, as I mentioned, some of the best matches. I have to ask you, and I asked Jim about this too, but that Cincinnati match, I mean, just that whole experience, was it as riveting and probably more riveting than what we saw on television? Because I was glued for four hours, which is hard to do nowadays. No, it, it was amazing. <laughs> and, I, and I think, especially so off the back of the Wimbledon final, when which those two contested, and then you, you thought, you know, how lucky were we to get a kind of match like that in the final of a major? And then suddenly the next time they play, it's as epic. And I think one of the things that is difficult when you're commentating on a match is that you do feel like it's very, very special. And then you've always got to check yourself and say, am I just you know, being a little over the top here? Is it as special? It's a, it's a Masters 1000, not a major. But then you know, if it is special, you've got mm-hmm. to make sure that you give it the, the right amount of respect. And I think that's where Jim's so good. You, know, he, he's always, you can always get good feel for how special it is when I'm commentating with him. And I, and I think... What's great is off the back of a match like that, you know, even in the trophy ceremony, they're respecting <laughs> each other so much and talking about how epic it was. And mm-hmm. Djokovic is talking about it felt like a major. <laughs> so having called it, you know, like that, I think it's always nice afterwards. And then at the end of the year, when Tennis Channel did their best sort of 10 matches of the season, it's nice to, to watch it back yeah. and, and kind of get a feel for, for whether, you, you know, you were over the top or not. I don't think we were. I think it was absolutely epic. And I think it was, you know, one of the best matches that I've, that I've ever commentated on, certainly last season, but uh, really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, there's just the push-pull with them when they pull. There's just when they play. There's just so many momentum swings, uh, and, and it brought up something else you said there. Do you watch old matches that you call? Are you critiquing yourself? Yeah, uh, and I think that's why it was really nice at the end of the year to watch the top ten matches. One of the funny things was, you know, like, let's say you get to the end of a major, like in Paris, so called the women's championship match. That was the first singles major final that I'd ever called. 
uh, with Lindsay. And then off the back of that, it was the men's final the following day. And that was the first men's mm-hmm. uh, singles major final. And then you kind of leave and then you, you, know, you get into the <laughs> yeah. U.S. swing and uh, oh, the grass court swing, then the U.S. swing and everything just kind of snowballs. Yeah. So it's actually nice to, to watch them back and then get a feel for, for what you thought of your work, mm-hmm. aspects in which you could improve. But I'd actually forgotten how tight that Roland Garros <laughs> final was for the women, that Mukhova had break points at <laughs> yeah. four all yeah. in the deciding set, you know, and she had a real chance there. And uh, so that was quite funny, you know, because suddenly then you're prepping for the men's final and then you're into the men's yeah. final and it's so meaningful because Djokovic has got right. such big numbers. But it was really nice to actually watch it back and get a feel for that. So, yeah, I try to if I can. Um, and I think that's a, that's something that, you know, in, a, in any profession, yeah. if you can get the opportunity just to, and then get feedback from other people as well, just to try and improve, that's what I'm always trying to do. Yeah, and we hope Carolina Muhova is going to make a healthy return. Unfortunately, the wrist pain not playing this Australian summer swing. Going to miss the Open. Uh, one player that's coming back, though, and is back is Rafael Nadal. We talked about the last time you were on. He was going to take his time, rebuild from the ground up, literally from the ranking up uh, coming into this year. Looked pretty sharp against Dominic Team. I know it's match one. Team's level can be debated where that's at, but... So far, so good. First match and all the stories that came out, Jason, about how good he looked in practice and training. And Dahl looks like he's right back where he belongs playing elite-level tennis. Normal rules don't apply (laughs) to those guys, do they? The likes of Federer, the likes of Rafa, the likes of Novak. And and that's what's so remarkable. Any other player, even a great player, out for a year, you know, you're going to be rusty. You're not Mm going to be able to play. You're going to be nervous. And I'm sure he was all of those things. But still the level that he was able to produce on the match court – First time playing for nigh on 11 months and going through surgery, going through a lot of pain, a lot of doubts emotionally. But what was, I think, the best news was off the back of the match, he said he's playing pain-free. Yeah. And he said he has been pain-free for a while, so he has been able to practice at 100%. He has been able to practice with the best guys in the world and give it 100%. And, and I think if you're pain-free, then you can kind of relax almost and then just concentrate on the process and on winning matches. And I, and I think that's where mm-hmm. he struggled in the past when he has had to play with pain. Mm-hmm. We saw him do that, didn't we, at Roland Garros, where he was hobbling around half the time and still able to win the title there and then on crutches thereafter. Yeah. So I think that's the best news. If he can stay pain-free, if he can stay injury-free, then he can manage a season, and then there's no reason yeah. why it has to be his last season. And he said just as much. There is no reason. He doesn't want to get anyone's hopes up that, you know, things aren't going to last forever. And the players know, right? Like when you hear Holger and Arthur Feast say, this guy in practice, he's got it. <laughs> I was thinking about this too, Jason, like of all the players, and it's tough at any level to take a year off of tennis. You're going to lose your ranking points. You're not going to be where you were, especially an aging athlete. But if there's anybody in the game that can be focused on the process, right, it's him. Because he was always so process-oriented, even when he was winning and how he was handling success, that I think if anyone's built for, it's strange to say, but built for this, you know, revitalization project, it would be him. Well, that's why it was so nice to, to hear the fact that he had enjoyed again getting out on the practice court, and he so enjoyed getting out on the match court. And just like Andy Murray, you know, if you still continue to enjoy that process, why stop? You're retired for such a long time. And, and so many people, if if we do get these great players that suddenly have a dip in form, we say, oh, come on, it's time to retire. We want to remember you at your best. If they <laughs> want to continue to play, yeah. let them play for as long as possible. And certainly the likes of, you know, Rafa Roger while he was playing before, then yeah. he shut his career down. Uh, Murray's not quite there, you know, where he would mm-hmm. want to be, and he's not quite where Novak, Roger, and Rafa are. Um, but there's no reason why Rafa can't now yeah. compete at the highest level if he's pain-free. I think... Perhaps one of the challenges for him would be to see how much tennis he needs to play to to feel comfortable and confident. We know historically right. he's always one of these guys that likes to play a lot of tournaments, even on the clay. You know, yeah, undoubtedly yeah, yeah, the best player yeah. on that surface. He's racking up those <laughs> tournaments going yeah. into Roland Garros, right? And so I think what Novak has done exceptionally well in the last sort of two or three mm-hmm. seasons is play fewer tournaments but still maintain his level and still mm-hmm. be able to win majors. Uh, and, of course, yeah. because of his vaccination status, he wasn't able to play right. some of those tournaments. Uh, that's not the case anymore. Yeah. But I think he's done that remarkably well, and I think it's always been a challenge for great champions to play yeah. fewer events but still maintain their level. Can Rafa do that? If yeah. he can't, will his body hold up to playing a full season? Roger kind of started that too, right? 2017, the last Federer great push was playing less tournaments, skipping RG a lot too. Uh, it's a good point. And it's something I think we're going to have to monitor, right? Like 
he can look great in one match, the heart of a champion. All those cliches are true with him, if not for him more than anybody else. But what does the body look like when you have to play every other day, best of five? I think that's really the, the question we have because what we saw is that he's built himself back up to play elite-level tennis. But how he holds up for the grind of you know a brutal season and a brutal major run is going to be the question. Yeah, and you see the start of the season a couple of years ago when he – Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible win mm-hmm. in Australia and then yeah. off the back of that went on the run and then got injured in Indian Wells didn't he and then all of a sudden there were question marks mm-hmm. as to what was going to happen the, the rest of the season and mm-hmm. that did hurt his cause but he's not one of these guys that if he does get a little tweak pulls out or stops he likes to play through it even yeah. in Australia last year when he could hardly <laughs> walk against Mackie McDonald finishes the match right yeah. and Indian Wells when he hurt himself in the semi-finals against Alcrest played the final against Taylor and, and even though it was a serious injury he's not one of these guys that likes mm-hmm. to you know, um, be a soft touch and pull out if there's any kind of niggly injury. So perhaps he needs to guard against that a little more too. Yeah, he's a very proud guy and a proud champion, and we're happy to see him back playing at the top. Uh, Other news and notes, Novak Djokovic playing in the United Cup. Looked well early, but Alex Demonor actually beats him last night. Ends his unbeaten streak in Australia at, I think, 43 matches. Just another one of those absurd Novak yep. numbers of just winning. But first off, for Demonor, he hadn't had a win like this. I know there's circumstances, and not all wins are the same. But just beating Novak Djokovic in any scenario is the cause for a, a job well done and a round of applause. Oh, of course it is. And I, I was doing a little stint on uh, T2 uh, a couple of months ago, and I was talking about Dimonor being perhaps one of the most underrated players on the men's tour because I, I'd done a lot of his matches throughout the summer where he played exceptionally well in Canada, played exceptionally well in Los Cabos, and on a sort of slow-paced, hard court, I mean, he's so difficult to beat. He works so exceptionally hard. He's got a great attitude, and he's been ranked sort of between 20 and 10 for such a long yeah. time, and yet... His record in the majors is relatively poor. I think he's only made the one quarterfinal. Mm-hmm. US Open, maybe 2020, the pandemic year. And and I don't know why, because his results at tour level and week in, week out, he has such great consistency. His base level of play is so good that I think his results should have been better at major level. And so I was bigging him up in the last sort of two or three months. So I'm delighted to see that yeah. he started this season really well. And that is a marquee win for him. And I think mm-hmm. that will really help give him a little bit of confidence going into the Aussie Open, going into the majors, and the belief that his results can get better when it really matters against the best in the world. Yeah, we're not sure where Kyrgios is on the Australian, like in terms of playing right now. But Demonar has been the guy that they've kind of had their hopes in. He's been so close that you feel like it could take something like this to spurn him for that breakthrough because he is in tremendous shape and he's not that far off. He gives these guys great matches. He just hadn't won before. So we hope to see that goes forward for him. On the Djokovic side, he was grabbing his wrist. He's not going to give, you know, take credit away from the opponent. He gives full marks to Demonar. But now we're in that, you know, it's not uncharted territory, right, Jason? It's, okay, going into Aussie, how is he going to manage injury? How can he get to the finish line? Which, by the way, he's done multiple times. So... We're going to play this game. I would be shocked if we saw him before Australia again. I think he, now he goes into rest recovery mode. But if anyone knows how to manage their body, it's him. That's what he does so well. And, and I think he's become such a complete player. that Jim Courier talks about it a lot in Australia last year. He had the, the leg problem, which I think was initially a cause for concern in uh, Adelaide, playing against Cordra, uh-huh. I think, there. And then it didn't recover before the start of the, the Aussie Open. Uh, but then he just started hitting rockets off his phone and shortening the mm-hmm. rally and, and working around that in yeah. Cincinnati where s- suddenly he got hit with the heat first match during the day in the <laughs> tournament and had no energy, uh, couldn't sustain the, the required level from the baseline, just started coming into the net all the time and volleying like an yeah. incredible yeah. volley. And so he's got all of these assets available to him and it's just using the right one appropriately. Yeah. The downside is with the right wrist injury or a forearm injury, obviously that affects everything. Mm-hmm. So he's got to get that right. He, he's got a great team around him. They'll know what the problem is. We, we saw him getting worked on for a couple of days, both in practice and in his match, I think, against Lehechka in the United Cup, which was a little up and down for Novak. Um, and, and so I think that's crucial. But even if it does become a niggly injury and, it, and he's still having problems with it in Australia, day off in between matches, that helps. He knows how to handle mm-hmm. his body and that scenario. His record in <laughs> Australia is second to none. So he still goes in, even with a niggly injury, big, <laughs> big favor. 
And he's got more time in best of five to work with it, navigate it. So something to see. Uh, the last thing on the men before we switch up to the women would be the players that aren't playing before Aussie, Sinner and Alcaraz, it's, it's really no matches, maybe some exhibitions before. How do you weigh, you know, that decision? Is it a lot of risk that you'll be maybe rusty going into your first match at a major? Well, I think for Sinner, it's a slightly different scenario because he played a lot of tennis at the tail end of last year, didn't he? And if you look mm -hmm. at maybe from Wimbledon onwards, there was certainly no one playing any better than right. Sinner. And certainly in the last sort of couple of months of the season, the ability to beat Djokovic in his last couple of matches, to win the Davis Cup, finishing the season on such a high. But of course, in playing that long, you've also got to keep one eye on the future. You know, Darren Cahill uh, will be very aware of not wanting to burn him out. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they played a lot of tennis last year. He won a lot of matches. So you've got to then just take it easy a little bit, let the body rest, recover. We know the first major is just around the corner, but if he can maintain that level of play, he's got a great attitude, then maybe just a couple of matches in the Kuyong Classic, something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, and then these guys are good enough to play themselves into form in a major. You know, that he shouldn't have too many problems. The, the depth in men's tennis is incredible, but if he can get through his first couple of matches, then yeah. you're looking good. So yes, it's a little bit of a risk, mm -hmm. no doubt. But I think what I really like is one eye on the future and, yeah. and not burning out too much. What you don't want is suddenly to start playing early again, you know, taking a little bit of money and then suddenly getting injured. Uh -huh. And then all that hard work, all that momentum that he's been able to build in the last few months is for nothing. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's going to be interesting to see. Uh, more with Jason Goodall here with, on Tennis Channel Inside In, start of the 2024 season. On the women's side, the big news right now, Naomi Osaka's back. She's looked pretty good, won the first match against Korpach, and uh, lost a tough one against Carolina Pliskova, who has done a lot, been a major finalist, and is very competitive there. So I think she's looked good would be my first statement. I think the ball striking's there. But with her, I'm just always going to monitor her approach to the game and how she's feeling. And she seems like she's enjoying the process of being a tennis player and has handled wins and, and handled that loss very well. So it's good to see Naomi enjoying the sport of tennis. That's crucial, isn't it? You know, she doesn't need to play. She's financially set. She's got a nice family. And so she only wants to play if she mm -hmm. really wants to. And, you know, you're going to win and lose matches. So you, you have to be able to handle those. I, I think what, where she was struggling in the past was, you know, we all had such high expectations and, and she perhaps felt pressure to maintain that level. She wasn't able to do so. And then it all started to get a little heavy, you know, and then she didn't like all of the, the negative press. And, you know, she, she, by her own admission, she didn't speak to a lot of other players, kept herself mm -hmm. to herself. So, you know, perhaps it came, became a little lonely. And so therefore, all of a sudden, when you've got a, you know, a, a boyfriend and the opportunity to start a family, then perhaps that side of your lifestyle becomes you know, a little easier to manage and, and a little more fun than your job, as it were. So to see it, you know, more as something that she doesn't have to do, but that she wants to do, I think is, is the right recipe for success. Never going to lose the ball striking. Uh, she needs to get in the best possible shape. She's done a remarkably good job of doing that yeah. since, you know, giving birth. And then does she enjoy the challenge because the game does move on? Even if you're only out of the game for six months, even if you're out of the game for a year, players improve. The younger players get yeah. better. They don't have the same respect for you as they did when perhaps you won back-to-back -back majors right. and you were virtually unbeatable. So, you know, can she handle that? The target's going to be always on her back because she's such a big-name player. It's great for tennis, great for the sport that she's back at it. I don't think there's any doubt that she's going to be back at the top level of the game. And then I just love to see her really competing like yeah. she used to. You know, if you can handle <laughs> what was thrown at her on Arthur Ashe Stadium court against Serena in that US Open final, I mean, you must be so tough mentally and yeah. you must enjoy the process mm -hmm. and the challenge. And so yeah. I think, you know, for tennis in general, it would be so good if yeah. she was to play a full season and she was to get back to, to 
right. competing for major finals because it would just be great for the game. There's something about how she hits the ball, right? Like it's just different. And even, you know, this is a, this is a long-term investment, a long-term plan. It's going to be a slow build-up process, but I have no doubt that she will get there. The one point you made is crucial. The train never stops. The landscape's changed. Now we have Iga. Now we have Savoyank on her heels. Coco's a major champion. So it's always tough. And I think this is a challenge that she's going to embrace. It's not going to be easy. There's no guarantees in this sport, but adding her to the mix would just be great for tennis. And, you know, on that same vein, Iga just looks like she's locked right back into where she is. She does. And I think with her, I, I think a lot depends on her attitude. I yeah. think last season, this time last year, remember, left mm -hmm. the court in tears, losing to Jesse Begula in the semifinals, two and two of the United Cup. And then I thought she played poorly in Australia. There were no tactical changes when yeah. she lost to Rybakina. She did really struggle until she kind of got back on the clay. Then she's supremely confident on her favorite surface. Undoubtedly the best clay court player in the world. Sabalenka was yeah. challenging her though, I thought, and a great final against Mulhova in Roland Garros. Struggling on the grass, as she always mm -hmm. does. You know, can she mm -hmm. just fine-tune her game plan and get used to the nuances of playing on a grass court? And then, you know, having won the U.S. Open previously, there's no reason why she can't be just as effective yeah. on a hard court. But she did say towards the tail end of last year that she has changed her attitude, that, yeah. that she is, again, enjoying tennis, enjoying the process, enjoying being yeah. world number one. I thought she did remarkably well at the year-end championships to beat Sabalenka in the semifinals. I mean... What an awful <laughs> tournament that was with the weather and the organization yeah. and everything. Everything that's the elements through yeah. at Eager, she's still able to get it done, win the season ending yeah. championships, finish the year ranked number one. I think that gave her a huge yeah. boost. She's played well so far in the United Cup. There's still aspects of her game that she can improve. She can get a little more comfortable coming forward. She can start mm. to volley a little better. And if she can do that, then against the very best players in the world, like Sabalenka and Rebecca, when they start throwing power at her and yeah. start to overpower her, she she can have uh, one or two different tactics up her sleeve to try and disrupt their rhythm. So yeah. I think there's definitely improvements that she can make, but, I mean, she sets the bar. Yeah. Do you think that's a big four situation on the women's side, or do you think Iga and maybe Sabalenka, I mean, Coco's in the mix, Rabakina, someone that was under the radar. Are, how are you handicapping it going into this year, into this first major? I, I like Iga and uh, Arena as yeah. the, the top two players. I think over the last 12 months, they've shown mm -hmm. that you know, with Sabalenka winning the Aussie Open, going into Roland Garros, that semi-final, 5-2 up in the semis against Mulhova. I mean, she was the best player in the world. You know, she was playing some great stuff, and I thought she had an excellent chance mm -hmm. of beating Sviontek, even on the clay. She'd yeah. done so in the clay court swing earlier. And so I think she's some great consistency in the majors. I think she was the most consistent right. player in 2023. Uh, Coco obviously finished the season strongly, but I don't, I don't think she's quite there yet. There are still bigger holes in Coco's game. She's got great uh, competitive instincts, great athlete, best athlete on the tour, mm -hmm. um, defends the best on the tour. But there are holes in her game. I don't think we're going to see that kind of consistency from her as yet. And then for Rebecca, the same thing. When she's on, we <laughs> yeah. know she can beat anybody. Yeah. And when she was on last season, she won some big <laughs> tournaments and got close to winning her first major uh, outside of Wimbledon uh, in Australia. But uh, I think those two are kind of just ahead of the other two. Uh, and then, you know, if Naomi can start to play, then, then you've certainly got to put her in that conversation yeah. as well. Um, and then you've got Jessie Bagula is probably one of the it's most right consistent yeah. performers throughout the season. Can she make that breakthrough in a mm -hmm. major? So you've got half a dozen players that are really, really yeah. good. It's fun to see. And I wanted to throw in, I know she's not there yet, but what I saw on her match, uh, Andreva looks like she's got future major winner written all over. It's just a matter of when with her. Super young. She's been great. Uh, there's a lot of players to like, and I'm excited to see where this season goes. Have to ask you before we wrap here. Uh, Emma Raducanu, the big news, she's in the main draw. She's trying to rebuild herself. Attitude seems good. Talk about a lot thrown at you. I mean, that was just, I mean, you know, like, as a British tennis player, otherworldly what she has had to deal with. It's, it's actually yeah. amazing when now it's been a couple of years and everyone can kind of step back to just think about what she achieved at the U.S. Open. Was that one of the, the, the greatest sporting achievements of yeah, all time? Yeah, I don't think not it'll tennis, ever happen again. Not tennis, like if sporting. You, if you ask me, will someone go through qualifying, win their major through there, just that. Not drop a, set. drop a set. I don't think it'll happen again. I mean, if it was a movie, you'd say it was nonsense because <laughs> that would never happen in real life. You'd walk out after 10 minutes because yeah. this is ridiculous. You know. Yeah. But so... That in itself, I think, deserves even more respect than perhaps it got at the time. And then secondly, you know, when you've had triple surgery, who knows? I think with Emma, 
it, it's she talks about being reborn, right? So mm. it's having a completely different attitude. It's mm. it's not worrying about every time you lose it being a headline, and the fact that you you were the U.S. Open champion and that you haven't done as well mm-hmm. since. You just got to almost forget that. And obviously, with a little more time passing, that mm-hmm. becomes easier to do. Yeah. Secondly, can you get healthy? Can you start to practice? Can you start to play matches? Can you start to enjoy life on a tour as if she'd never played that U.S. Open, as if she was 50 mm-hmm. in the world and, and she was 70 the previous season and then she was looking to go top 30 and top 20? Set yourself positive goals and enjoy the process. Uh, have friends on tour. Enjoy traveling for 30 weeks a year. And, and just really you know, start from scratch again as far as your career is concerned. Easier said than done. But number one, she's got to get fit and healthy. Number two, she's got to play a full season. And then we'll see. But... I just hope that she is in the mix because, again, she is another superstar. She is somebody that transcends our sport. Uh, so fun to watch. Uh, such a nice person. So, again, you start putting her in the mix at these big events. And, and rather than having half a dozen players, you've got 10 or 12 really good, strong personalities, different personalities, different styles of play. And that's why, and that's what makes the WTA Tour at the moment so exciting. I love it. It's like just like a major crockpot. Just throw another one in the yes. mix. Like we need more. Uh, well, this has been fun, Jason. I'll let you get out of here on uh, on this as you've got some matches to call tonight. You ever seen anything in tennis like Manorino busting himself open? I guess Usney, but busting himself open with the butt of his right and winning the match, by the way. Well, have you just seen anything like Manorino? That's no. the end of the. He doesn't have to talk no. about anything else that no. he does. I mean, strings his rackets are like 10 pounds, <laughs> plays incredibly well, coming off the back of the best season yeah. of his career at like, what, 48 years old? Yeah. The dude's yeah. incredible. Yeah. And um, I, just, I just think, yeah. again, he's another great story. There, what we've got now in tennis, yeah. both men's and women's, is we've got a, such a lovely balance of ex-champions that are coming back. We haven't mentioned Angie Kerber, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, these players that have stepped away, become mothers for the first time, back at it. Caroline Wozniacki, Elena Svitolina, they played each other, didn't they, in yeah, Auckland? They that was so nice to see. So we've got so many great stories, so many youngsters now now battling it out with sort of the elder statesmen on both the men's and the women's tours, so many great personalities. So you stick a pit in the order of play in Australia and you've just got a great story and you've got the prospect of a great match. And that's what makes this sport at the moment so fun. Generations colliding, especially. This is going to be a fun 2024. Uh, Jason Goodall, always grateful for your time on this podcast. Really enjoy watching you call these matches. Can't wait to see what happens this season and beyond. But thanks for joining the podcast, Tennis Channel Insight In. Always a pleasure. And I can't wait for our next installment. All right, huge thanks to Jason Goodall. As always, you can catch him on Tennis Channel's Airwaves, calling some of the biggest and brightest matches under the sun. And uh, he'll have his plate full in 2024. We know that. So thank you to Jason Goodall. Now we're going to talk to one of the coaching legends in the game, Jose Higueras. He's worked with Courier, with Chang, with Sampras, with Federer. He's also been a driving force of the USTA, and some of the players we're seeing lighted up now are a direct result for some of his coaching methods. It's Jose Higueras breaking down the game he loves and how he would coach it and impart that knowledge to the next generation and generations beyond. Here's Jose Higueras on Tennis Channel Inside In. All right, welcome everybody to Tennis Channel Inside In. We're on the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mitch Michaels from the Santa Monica Studios. As always, as we continue on with a lot of tennis to be played coming up, joined now by one of the pillars in the game and the coaching community. Our guest on this week's show has spent over 50 years, hard to believe, in pro tennis. He was a player that got up to number six in his playing career. 16 titles, a couple major semifinals, but then he uh, made arguably his biggest mark in the coaching circle coaching some legends of the game and champions, Hall of Famers like Jim Courier, Pete Sampras, Roger Federer. Uh, joining us now, calling him from Palm Springs here, it's Jose Higueras, uh, the recipient of the 2023 Tim Gullickson Coaching Award with the ATP as well. Jose, welcome to the show. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Uh, it's, uh, I'm glad to be here. Well, it's there's a lot to get to in your uh, illustrious career and a lot of you know the accolades that you've had and everything that's went down in your career. But I'll start with this question because you made your mark not just as a coach but as a player. So I have to ask, is it strange or, or was it at all strange now looking back as you you know have put the years and, and put the miles on that you're reviewed and you're viewed largely as a coach versus a player because you had this great playing career and now when people think about you and your impact on the game, is it strange that they think of you as a coach? Well, not really, yes, because we are all getting older, so a lot of the young kids uh, never, never saw me play, but a lot of these kids have seen me coach. So I think it's just a natural progression of uh, of time passing by, but um, 
but I have no issue with uh, with anything. I think um, I think it's just nice to be a uh, to be uh, be known as a as a tennis tennis person, which is what I am. And uh, and no, absolutely no. Uh, I remember my, my playing days uh, with very happy playing days, and uh, obviously a very happy coaching day. So everything good. Was there a uh, transition for you? And, and we'll get to the career, but you played and you jumped right into coaching. Was there a transition where you kind of saw yourself become a coach or, you know, cause a lot of players, a lot of people hang on to it and it's tough. There's nothing like being a player, being in the locker room. Did it take some time to set in that this was a new profession or did you just dive right in when your playing career was over? Well, when my uh, time came to retire, um, and, and basically because I had a, a pretty bad knee and a pretty bad elbow, um, uh, the only thing I've done in my life has been tennis. So I don't know. I didn't know how to do much, uh, much, much else. So, for me, besides the besides my uh, my love for the game, it was just a, a, a natural uh, natural mm-hmm. progression. So it didn't really take me that that, that much long to be on. I had to be about six months off after I stopped playing, and then from there I started coaching. So you growing up in Spain, and and now we look at Spain differently in the current day than maybe what it was. Given a lot of tradition, you were part of an era that kind of ushered that in. Your upbringing, though, and I know some of the guys that you've looked up to and that were pillars there, the Manola Santanos, the Andres right. Jimeno, um, those players, were those the players you kind of idolized? And what was tennis and being a tennis player like in Spain for you at that time? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Manolo Santana obviously was a, a, a really big uh, <clears throat> a big tennis uh, person in Spain. He was the, the first uh, player to win, actually, uh, slams. And then, obviously, uh, Andres Jimeno and then Manuel Orantes. Uh, Manuel Orantes won the U.S. Open in 75. And I was lucky enough to uh, to actually uh, be with Manuel Orantes for about 10 years, you know, with him uh, week in and week out. So, um, I mean, tennis wasn't as popular as it is now in my in my days, but it, it started to become popular as, as more good players were coming up. So, um, once again, I have great, great uh, memories of those days. Is it strange for you looking at it with what Spain is now? Like, could you even put into words what Rafa means? And you, you've described Alcaraz, the next guy up, as like a monster. But is it a little different <laughs> to think about your upbringing and now seeing Spain having one of the greatest players ever and somebody else on the way? Yes, I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it has changed a lot. You know, I thought, I thought, uh, I thought maybe I was a pretty good player in Spain until all these guys started to come up. You know, not only the Rafas, but the uh, the Juan Carlos Ferrero, the Carlos Moya. The Carlos Albert Costa. I mean, there's so many great players that came up in the last 20 years. So uh, <laughs> it makes me real, real happy to see uh, to see so many Spanish guys up there, and especially uh, especially having uh, somebody like Rafa, which has been uh, not only a great tennis player, but I believe a great uh, he, has a, he had a great positive uh, impact on the whole game as, on the game as a whole. He certainly does, uh, and I know we're going to get to this, but you've spent a lot of time with the USTA and working for tennis in America. What's something, kind of Rafa's era, maybe a little before with Juan Carlos Ferreira, Carlos Moya, as you said, what's something that you saw that Spanish tennis was getting right and that you maybe tried to emulate here when you were working with the Americans? Well, basically, they were pretty organized. Uh, that's the one thing I saw, which it, which also it came a little bit with um, – with uh, with playing on clay all the time, and as time went on, uh, the surfaces uh, became pretty equal speed wise. So in, in my playing days, uh, Wimbledon and, and the French Open were totally two different worlds. The French Open were very very slow, and uh, and Wimbledon was very very fast uh, with the, with the uh, grass court not in very good shape. So that kind of equalized the uh, the uh, the speed of the game, and and consequently also uh, equalized somehow the style of play. Uh, and I think uh, Spain at the time, and not only Spain, but also in South America, uh, we ha- we were a step ahead because that's how we grew up playing on clay, and uh, and yeah. the uh, the surface kind of kind of fit us uh, a little better. Yeah, it's it's well said, and we've seen surface changes in in the current day in tennis. Tennis is constantly evolving. You know, your career, and I, I wanted to get to that because everyone knows you as this coach. But you made those back to back French semifinals. You had some. You know, 16 titles, as I mentioned, but what were some of the challenges that you faced, you know, and how were you able to succeed as a player, given the time frame you are, given some of the outstanding talent you had to go up against? Where did you, you know, focus your efforts and how did you succeed? Well, I was, as I said before, I grew up playing on clay. So my, my game was uh, very one dimensional. 
And uh, and I was lucky enough that uh, I, I met my wife here in uh, Alinian Wells in 1979 and uh, got married in 1980. And then I moved to the U.S. And guess what? There was no Clecos here. So <laughs> so I had to practice on Harcos all the time. So it kind of opened up a whole a different uh, a view of how the game was played. I, I actually started to understand uh, what to do and how the surface w- w- was going to help me. And I think um, that uh, that has helped me a lot on my coaching, on my coaching through, through my career. Kind of understand understand what the surface can do for you and 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 what can you help yourself uh, when you play different surfaces. So that, that was a big big uh, theme for me. I think I was. Uh, I landed in the right spot for my tennis career, and uh, and actually I played my best tennis after um, after that uh, when I was uh, between twenty nine and, and thirty two or thirty three. Yeah, it's a good shout out too. You get married, and then you start to play a little better after yeah. that, and then you haven't left Indian College. <laughs> no, you're yeah. still in Palms, but that's that's kind of unique too. I mean, we saw there's some outliers right with Connors at the U.S. Open. Nowadays, we're seeing players last longer, but in your era, it was. And I guess maybe you can expand on that. Why was it that like 30 was this like death sentence? Like, oh, that's it. He's an old player. But you and some other players were able to extend their careers. Well, I think obviously everything has advanced a lot. I think players, uh, uh, they are, you know, physically they're able to take out their bodies a lot, a lot better. They know a lot more than we did in my time. Uh, we used to play with wooden rackets, which obviously was a lot more uh, more punishing in your, in your arms or so tennis elbows and Shoulder injuries were a lot more common, uh, but in general, mm-hmm. I think the the players they eat better, they train better, they better coach. So, so I think that's a big part of it. But, but really, the biggest, biggest part of all, I think, is how much you love to play. And, uh, and I think we see that in uh, in some of the uh, in a lot of guys, and not only the uh, the big three, but you know, you you have uh, Andy Murray. You know, still he he still wants to play. You have Babrinka, a lot of these guys. So. I, I would think it has to do a lot with uh, with how much you love to play, and uh, and I would think some of these guys will play. They are going to play as long as they can because that's what they love to do. Yeah, they love what they do. The money doesn't hurt either at this level. But you're well, right; you have to be tested. <laughs> yeah, there is only so much, so many times you can eat a day. So I don't know how much money you need after you have enough. But uh, I would think that the drive yeah. is, a, is, a, is a little more with uh, yeah. with these guys than just than just yeah. money. Oh, yeah, absolutely there. Um, you know, you retire in 86, and I just want to set the stage for the people out there listening. You get involved in coaching. You're working with Michael Chang when he wins the French Open in 89, so it's not that far away. How did you get your foot in the door coaching, and not just coaching, Jose, but at that high level? How did you start to that process of working with some top players? Well, I started my first uh, client, uh, you want to call it client, uh, as a coach was Mary Jo Fernandez. It just happened that they were playing. She was playing a tournament here at Mission Hills, where I was based. And uh, I just retired about six months ago. And her dad is, uh, work is from, was from Spain. So we started talking, you know, and blah, blah, blah. And he asked me what I thought. And I said, well, see, he's the ball well, but she probably can play better, blah, blah, blah. So that was my, my first, my first uh, uh, interaction with coaching. I worked with Mary Jo for, for two years. And then uh, the USDA started uh, somewhat of uh, player development. And I was contacted and I started to uh, do some work with them as an independent contractor. So I, I gave them like 25, 25 weeks a year. And my first two guys that I coached was uh, Michael Chiang and Pete Sampers. So I was pretty, uh, pretty lucky. They weren't good at the time, but, but uh, yeah. definitely the material was there. And I didn't have to do that much for these guys to do that well. So once again, I was lucky to start and then uh, and then hopefully help him along the way. Timing is everything, right? I mean, you get to work in America and you put all the, the work in and had to develop these players. But when you look back at it, think about the timing of your life, Jose. You're here, you're looking to get into coaching, you're in America and you stumble into, still obviously put the work in, but you stumble into the greatest generation that maybe American yes. tennis has seen. So the timing was pretty crazy, but you know, having to be here and be prepared for that moment definitely propelled you for success. It, it, it does. And, uh, and the way I value coaches, uh, I mean, obviously, there are so many great coaches out there that, that never have a, uh, they're never on TV, but, but the public in general, they know more, the coaches that are on TV. So I, I think uh, the way I like to measure a coach is, is, the, is the coach that gets the best out of the player. And the best out of the player, obviously, it differentiates depending on the, um, on the talent of the player. So if, if, if I'm working with somebody and, and I get the best out of him or her, 
and uh, they end up of 150 in the world to me is a success. And that's how, how I always view my coaching. It's about making the players better. Uh, but obviously, if you don't have the talent, they can only go so far. Yeah, your philosophy and what I've heard you say is very, you know, humble. There's a lot of humility. You almost downplay your role. And I, you know, I, I take a lot of that as, you know, how respectful you are. But at the end of the day, I think you put it on like, look, the players are out there making plays. Your right. job, and I've heard you say this too, is to process the information, transfer it, find a way. But ultimately, you got to put them in position to succeed because they're the ones that have to do it. Well, uh, you show me a coach that thinks that he's that good, and I'll give him a player, and I'll show him he's not that good. So once again, <laughs> because I just don't measure the uh, the coaching by by ultimate, but by how high the player gets, I measure by how if you can get the best out of the player, I think you've done a great job, and that's always um, how I look at it. <laughs> right. Morithose Higueras here on Tennis Channel Insight. And one of the other players you got to work with in that American boom was Jim Courier. Uh, he's spoken glowingly of you. I see him around here every now and again. And, uh, you know, he, he's been on record saying you're the one that taught him how to play tennis and not just hit the ball. Um, before he was a multi-time major champion and a Hall of Famer, what did you see about Courier and the potential there? Because he came through that Bulletary Academy, was not the prize student, but ended up becoming a world number one what did you see about him from the early going well when i when i met jim uh, it was very clear to me that he will do whatever it took to get the best out of him and that is the best thing that a coach can see in a player so it wasn't that much a motivation on my part he actually was motivating me you know on a daily basis just because of his will and uh and how much he wanted to do it so so once again uh jim jim was a I would say it was a, a, a pretty easy guy to a player to work with, uh, yet because he has the best ingredient that a champion has, which is the desire to become the best player that they can be. And, and uh, Jim had that. That legendary story, the story that kind of got you in the mainframe was that 91 Roland Garros right. final where there was the rain delay against Agassi and Courier credits you for telling him to back up on Agassi's serve. Was that something that you just saw in the moment or was that something you had kind of been tracking and then had the opportunity to tell him? Because he credits you and says that changed the complexion of the match and ultimately led to that title. Well, it was pretty clear to me just because, once again, I had a little... Uh, in, in those days, uh, hardcore players, we like, there was a saying, I said, well, I don't like to back up. Well, nobody does. But if you get punched <laughs> in the face or the situation is not right, then you probably want to try to defend yourself. So basically... It was very clear to me the way Jim was returning uh, Andre's serve that he wasn't getting into, into the points because uh, he didn't have time to react and Andre had better hands than him. And, uh, and basically, it was just a matter of giving him some more time. So it wasn't really a big deal. Uh, but, it, but Jim was the kind of player that um, if you told him something, boy, he, would, he, he took it to the grave. And, and as soon as I remember him walking into the locker room and... Uh, and saying and, and look at me with all big eyes and said, "You know what happened?" He was so intense, and I said, well, "I said nothing, Jim, but nothing happened. You know, this is what happened. I mean, you just doing this and that. You know, you just take some time, you get the ball in the air, and give yourself a little time. anyway." So the compression of the match kind of changed. It was a really tough match, uh, but I was happy actually for him to um, to come through. But he was receptive, right? When you, because I'm assuming that there's players out there where. If you discuss, hey, you need to do this differently or, hey, this isn't working, it might be tough to yes. process that and change. You're saying that maybe what made Jim and other players special is their willingness to adapt and listen to you in that moment. Well, Jim, because of our success, I started working with Jim, I believe, in, at, the, uh, at the end of 1990. And then uh, he went to Australia, got to the I worked with him for about three months. And then he went to Australia to the quarterfinals, had a tough match with Edberg, and then he came back and won Indian Wells and won Miami. So, so he he was pretty, uh, he was so, somewhat dependent uh, in a way of of, uh, of what I was telling him, and, and extremely receptive. Um, and I think I think yeah, it makes it easy, but at the same time, my goal when I work with with players is to make them independent, because at the end of the day, they are the mm -hmm. ones that make the decision. And I can tell them something, but if the situation is not right, they don't feel good, whatever it is. But, uh, but Jim, no, he, whatever I told him at that time, you know, as, as we spent more and more time together, he understood more what uh, the situation was. But, um, but he took direction pretty well, especially the first couple of years. 
you mentioned something there a, a bit ago where it was like, you know, if you get punched in the face, you got to adapt. And I don't know if you're, you know, there's some, there's some proud Spanish boxers. I don't know if you're a boxing fan, but do you kind of see tennis in that regard? Obviously I, not a direct comparison, but it's like a combat sport. I do. I mean, I think, I think especially, uh, I think there is quite a few similarities, especially how do you uh, inflict power and, 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 and take power. And it's about balance. It's about movement. And I think actually what you're saying, I give the kids so many examples. He said, well, I don't like to back up. And I say, okay, well, let me just punch you in the face. But is your reaction going to be to pull your face forward or actually, or actually put, you know, lean back? So kind of in a, in a fun way, you know, to, for them to understand that you cannot be on the offensive all the time. So you have to adapt according to how the ball comes. What is your thoughts just kind of currently in the current day? Because that opportunity to make an adjustment happened during a rain delay. Right. What are your thoughts on as a as a veteran of the coaching circles of it being legal now? Of you being able to give instructions mid match? Are you a fan? Do you think it takes anything away? What are your thoughts on that? I, I, I think it's good. I'm not too crazy about about being able to talk all the time. To be honest, uh, I kind of like the format that the women had, where you can go every set, or you can mm. actually make it two times a set on a changeover and talk to and talk to the player. I'm not sure that I like this uh, this yucky, 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 you know, uh, continuously from the box. But I think it's good. I think it's good for the game. I think it will change matches. It will make the players better, and it will also give the, the coaches a little more uh, a little more relevance, you know, because uh, I think they do make a difference. I, I think it's it, we're in the early stages, right? So you have to kind of figure out. I mean, it, it's not the worst step, but there's still some edges that need to be roughed out. Right. But I, I think that. You know, the women's format before was good. And and just kind of getting to your career and obviously working in America, career wins a couple of French Opens. We know the one Agassi won. Clay court tennis has been an issue here. And obviously on the men's side, we're looking for, you know, more success there in America. How have you tried to get, I guess, impart wisdom and teach American players to adapt? And what do they have to do to be better to succeed on the clay where Europeans, people from Spain, have a natural advantage of growing up playing on it? Well, uh, you gotta play more. You know, to learn to learn how to play on clay or on grass or on hardcore, you gotta play more, and you gotta know the nuances of the of the core and uh, and how the core you know helps you. So, so basically, basically, also a, a huge component is uh, is your your footwork and your balance, which uh, when you play on on a, on a fast surface, that limits that a little bit because of the speed of the core. But as, as I said before, uh, the speed of the course is pretty equal. You know, if you go to a I mean, it doesn't seem like Wimbledon is that much faster than the French Open, which is pretty shocking for guys like me. You know, so so. But at the yeah. end of the day, at the end of the day, you have to experience enough hours and enough days on any surface to to fully understand uh, how the surface can help you. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Basically, every former player I've talked to, age I want to say like forty five and up. They all say, "Oh, the the courts are are so different than they used to be. Oh, yeah. The speed is just like yeah. across, yeah." And Wimbledon, big one. Um, Two thousand eight, Jose is when you took the USTA job, coaching elite player <laughs> development. Uh, Patrick Macron was there. It was an interesting time. You had players that were ranked high in the American men's game, but I think only seven men in the top one hundred, and like four in the top uh, for the women in the top one hundred. So it was a very different time. And the talent pool was drying up. But you take that job, walk me through why that was, and ultimately what you did to build up the the system. Because Jose, a lot of the top stars we see now came through that product of the elite time there, and you know they credit you and that program for building them up to where they are today. So if you could walk me through how that job came to be and what were some of the things you did to make it a success? Well, um, that, that in 2000, I started um, I started at the end of 2008. Actually, I was working with Roger Federer at the time. And that uh, it kind of tells you how smart mm-hmm. I am. So, uh, you know, Patrick McEnroe called me and said, hey, Jose, <laughs> and I said, listen, I have enough enough experience with, that, with the USDA. I, I don't want a full-time job because uh, they change a precedence every two years. And every two years, somebody comes with a different idea. And uh, to actually do something, you need time. To I can coach a player or two, but to actually try to build a program nationwide, you, we need time. So anyway, so I said, no, 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 I'm, I'm not interested in that. And I had a pretty good job with Roger, obviously. So make a long story short, by the end of um, at the U.S. Open, um, Patrick said, listen, I, uh, we guarantee you that we're going to have at least seven years uh, so I met with a couple of the press, incoming presidents, and they assured me that they were going to do that. So then uh, I made the decision of actually stopping uh, 
working with uh, with Roger and take that job. Why did I do that? Uh, because I thought I could actually impact a lot of people, not only players, but uh, but coaches and parents and, and, and a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm a tennis yeah. guy. I love the game. And that's how it started. But uh, I'm happy that you asked me that because uh, if you ask me what would be uh, your proudest achievement in coaching, I would say actually that. I would say my time spent with a... Uh, with with, uh, with player development, we we took the country, and when I say we, it wasn't me by myself. I had a bunch of good people with me, uh, with with absolutely no structure. Uh, put together a teaching and coaching philosophy that we took through the country, and we united yeah. the country. We united some of the uh, some of the um, most important aspects on how you teach, and uh, and and then from there, um, if I tell you a stat, which is unbelievable, in in twelve years. In 12 years, we had 22 uh, Grand Slam, um, junior Grand Slam champions in, in 12 years. If you look at oh. uh, you look 12 years before that, or 10 years before that, there were two. And when you become one of the top players, uh, junior players in the world, that's a pretty good sign that you're going to be a pretty good pro. So, so once again, the mm-hmm. impact that we had uh, around the country, uh, it was unbelievable. And what, what really saddens me is that all that has been uh, has been destroyed by new leadership, uh, and that was always my fear that a new president, a new board, uh, they want to make their mark and they change things. So we lost uh, half. Our, uh, I'm not working with the USD anymore, so I don't really, as you guys say, I don't have a dog in this fight. But I do have a dog in this fight because of the work that we put into, and it's sad to see how they are uh, destroying that by uh, cutting the budget in half and losing half of our coaches. Yeah. Um, and it's, it is because we know the commitment you made. I looked it up. You yeah. said you traveled something like 2 million yeah, miles. Flying. I did. You're I just did. I, everywhere. I went through, we, and once again, when I say I, I say we, I went <laughs> through my first three and a half years, I spent taking that teaching and coaching philosophy through every section. We did hundreds, if not thousands of camps. We graduated uh, almost 2,000 uh, coaches on the high-performance performance coaching uh, program. So once again, uh, uh, for those people that, that don't know me, I love tennis. And tennis has been great to me and my family. And that uh, I always thought was a, a good way to actually repay some of that debt. Yeah. I've got the chance to speak to some of those guys that were in that group, the, the guys in that group, right. Tiafo, Paul, Opelka, Fritz. Right. Uh, and they all say how, you know, competitive it was, how just yes. how intense it was in a good way, how it brought the best out of them. And, yeah. and some of them were like, man, it's, we, you know, we missed that and it's not the same anymore. Like similar to what you're saying, yes. what was special about that group and, you know, how were they so receptive to getting better and what ways were you able to kind of, you know, empower them to get better and have these careers we're seeing now? Well, I mean, to, to me, once again, the, uh, my main goal when when we started that was to, was changing the uh, the culture. It wasn't a very good culture in terms of how the kids went about their practices, uh, the coaches how the coaches went about their practices. So when you see a kid like Francis or, or Taylor or, or Tommy or Riley or any of these boys, uh, you can see that they like to play, but they need a structure. They need a structure, and they needed a program. Uh, that they were going to follow on a daily basis, and that and those were the expectations, and that and that it wasn't easy. Believe me, it wasn't easy at the beginning. Uh, but as time went on, that kind of rubbed on more and more and more kids, and I think that's the reason that you see so many good little players coming up. Well, it's an interesting time for American men's tennis. There's uh, some players that are coming up. We're trying to end that Grand Slam drought, so we'll right. see if it happens. <laughs> right. But you did mention something else too. You worked with Roger Federer in 2008. Yes. Right. Uh, 2008 was an interesting year for him for a yes. lot of reasons, you know, had, you know, the heartbreak at Wimbledon does win the U S open. Uh, before we get into some of the specifics, I just had the question, what did you learn from working with this guy who was at the peak of his powers, 27, 26 around that time. But what'd you learn from Federer as a coach? Well, uh, the one thing I learned when I work with a, with a player of that caliber, which had that many is that they know a lot. They may actually know more than me. So, so I gotta be pretty, pretty careful with, with what I say. But uh, the couple of things that strike me with, with Roger is uh, really his uh, honest love for the sport. I mean, he loves to play tennis, and and probably the most important part is how well 
how well he carries himself, how how uh, uh, sincere and genuine he is when he relates to people. And I've seen that, you know, first time with uh, him dealing with uh, people at tournaments uh, and when there were no cameras, when there were nobody watching. So, so and, and as a coach also, I learned that uh, there are some people that, uh, some players that you can structure more than others. And uh, like with Roger, yeah. Roger, um, he plays, he's, he's a great talent. I don't want to say was because he's still he's still here, but uh, he, he is a great talent. And a lot of those guys, I think Alcaraz kind of reminds me a little bit of that too. Uh, they play they play by instinct a lot more than other players that you can actually structure more. So so that's another thing I, I, I actually learned from him, and is that uh, you can only box so so much a player with that much talent because at the end of the day, they're gonna play more by instinct than uh, what you tell them. Do you have to, I guess, in that regard, Jose, give him a little more rope? I mean, the, the rare ones, the ones that love the game and also play by instinct and have the skill level that's otherworldly, maybe give them, do you have to maybe give them a little more rope to be creative and do things that other players wouldn't? Yeah, yeah, I mean, you do, but at the same time, I think the player is just taking in that stride too. Uh, if uh, you have a guy like, uh, like Rafa, I mean, Rafa, I think, is a lot more structured, you know, when he plays. I mean, if he has to hit, uh, 15 balls to the, the other guys back, and guess what? He's gonna hit 17. Well, if Roger, yeah. to, if Roger, you give the same information to Roger in the fourth ball, if he comes and he feels like doing something else, he's gonna do something else. So, so I think you give them the information uh, and, and always give them the freedom to actually do what uh, you know what comes more natural to them. And for Rafa, hitting 17 in a row comes a lot more natural than for Roger. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and just looking at some of the other players you've worked with, Jose, it hasn't, you know, and, and not to take anything away from any, if you make the pro level, you're at the top, right. top of the sport. But you work with some players that weren't the Hall of Fame level household names, but, you know, they made strides under your tutelage. In a way, is that kind of as or more fulfilling working with some of these players that, you know, they make improvements that we might not see on a national level, but you're still getting the best out of them. Is that in a way, as fulfilling or more as a coach? Absolutely. I mean, my biggest nightmare uh, when, when I was coaching was, uh, I mean, my only goal when I was coaching was that the player got better. Now, now getting better didn't, didn't assure me he was going to win a Grand Slam title, but that was my biggest thing was, is this guy or girl getting better? So, so obviously, obviously um, I mean, I think as, as time goes by, I mean, believe it or not, I lost quite a few nights of sleep because I couldn't figure it out uh, some things that I thought uh, this player could do better. So, so that was my only, that's the way I always measure my coaching. It's not uh, the resource I can only control to a point, but I think uh, if you do your, your daily work, uh, everybody that you work with will get better. Couldn't agree more. Uh, more with Jose Higueras as we wrap up here on Tennis Channel Inside In. I just wanted to also finish up with some of the coaching philosophies. So if there's potential coaches out there listening, they can hear from an expert in the field. Um, you have this process that I looked up on you. It's right. you know a very simple state. You, you stress keeping it simple. Right. And the things I've looked up in researching you is you assemble info, you process it, and then you pass it on. It seems like it's basic, but you've probably seen some coaches that might just get too bogged down in the minutia and trying to be, yes. I don't want to say geniuses, but too many steps. Sometimes it's just as simple as those things, just assemble info and pass it on. Yes. I mean, that's, uh, I think tennis is, uh, is complicated enough uh, for me to try to complicate it more. So, so at, at the end of the day, I think uh, if I can explain a player uh, something in two words, believe me, I'm not, I'm not going to use three. I'm going to use two. And if I can do it in one, I use one. And at the same time, uh, with, uh, with my information, I, I try for the player to be accountable for that information uh, and make sure that the player understands the information. Because you, you learn by understanding. If you don't understand the, yeah. the process, then it's tough to learn. So once again, uh, I remember doing some uh, coaches education thing and I do a presentation and then I can feel the coaches kind of looking at me and saying, Jose, that's it. Uh, that, that's, uh, and I say, well, I can get some flowers or put some music on. But this is what I do every day. Yeah. This is what I do every yeah. day. But I do it every day uh, like it was the last day that I'm going to do it. So, yeah. But, um, but I like simple. I do. And you can't beat reps at all, like practice reps. And you've been on record saying that practice has to be you know, harder in a lot of ways than the matches. Like there's a lot that can be said about studying film and trends. But at the end of the day, you can't 
beat hard reps in yeah. practice? I mean, it may be another way. I don't know another way. But if but if somebody does, I would love to hear it. Uh, and, and after saying that, uh, also understand that different players are different. And different players, uh, to get yeah. what they need, may need a different amount of reps. But at the end of the day, you got to spend your time on the practice court and make practices uh, as tough as matches, which it never happens. It doesn't matter how much you ask for yourself. When you play a match, it's always a little different. Um, yeah, but yes, that's, um, you need to put the work. And one of the things too, just kind of put a bow on this part is that you've stressed standards and we know different players have different standards. If you're Novak Djokovic, you have a different level, but you would demand standards out of the player. You demand standards out of yourself as a coach with each player you work with. Well, I gotta start, I gotta start by, uh, I always said, uh, some uh, non-negotiables that I call it. Right. And there are some things that I do not yeah. negotiate. And, uh, and if I don't have those, uh, if I don't have, uh, if I don't respect those non-negotiables, it's, it will be unfair for me to ask the players to respect them. So I think there's going to be a, an understanding on, on, on what everybody's, uh, uh, um, everybody's uh, obligations are and then, and then live by them. And I think uh, once you do that, uh, the relationship will grow and, and, and the work is a lot more effective. The last thing on this note I, I wanted to mention before I moved on was that you know, there's only one winner every week. So there's this failure cloud that hangs over and you're a coach that's progressed, that's stress progress and not to be afraid of failure. How do you reinforce that message and transition that translate that to players that look, it's about progress. You can't be afraid of failure. Each week is a chance. Each day is a chance to get better. Don't worry about a loss in a specific match derailing you. Well, I, I never tell them not to worry about a loss because you do. I mean, that's just, just a human nature. But I, I'm a big fan of making the right decisions. If you make the right decisions, you can practice those decisions. You can lose a match. You can lose two matches. You can keep losing. But if you stick with that, if you understand what the process is and you actually make the right decisions, those right decisions are going to get better. If you, The more you deviate from, from making the right decisions, uh, well, you practice bad decisions, but they get better too, unfortunately. So, so for me, it's about it's about you have a plan, uh, a daily plan on practice, and you respect that. You you know when you go to play a match, what you need to do, and you can obviously depending on the day deviate a little bit. But the decision making for me is all about uh, a little bit like life, you know. If uh, I tell the, I tell the kids this um, this example sometimes, I try to come up with some some funny things. I say, listen. Let me ask you. So, if you you're gonna cross the street and the red is light and, and the, the light is red, and you cross the street with your eyes closed, what do you think can happen? You probably get hit by somebody, right? I said, now you're gonna cross the street with the red uh, on on yellow. Well, uh, your chances are better, but it's still somebody may try to go through the light. You may get hit too. Now you go and cross the street with a with a green light. You somebody may be drunk and and run you over. But your chances are a lot better as you made the right decision yes. so for me that's always been a big part of the whole thing it's well said and it's a sage advice for people that are, are willing to hear it not just in tennis but in life in terms of how to you know take the right chances right. and make the right decisions right. um jose this has been fun i have to ask you though you know not too long ago this past within the past month honored by the atp the tim gullickson coaching award a lifetime uh, achievement essentially in coaching we know what Tim Gullickson meant to the game and how he was taken away from us way too young. But what was it like to be honored by your peers and for all the work that you've done in coaching at the pro level? Well, uh, first of all, is is uh, having teams named there. Tim was a, a good friend of mine. He was a great tennis person, and we all miss him. So, so having his name attached to something that I was uh, that I was given, it, it makes it makes it that much more special. Uh, in general, I'm not a big award guy, to be honest. So even though I'm, I'm honored about this, uh, about this award, but but basically, basically, uh, when they say about my coaching career in general, they do mention, "Oh, you were with this guy, that with this lamb, or blah blah blah." But as I said before, my biggest achievement actually was player development. What we, yeah, how we did with this with this country, and uh, and, and besides that, uh, I would just say that tennis has been good to me in my family and uh, I will say something that I said a few times through my coaching career I always ask myself uh, has tennis been is tennis uh, uh, proud of you and uh, that's a question that I asked myself when I was coaching and playing 
pretty much on a daily basis. And I, I, and I always try to actually make tennis part of me because I think tennis has been very good to me. Yeah, and uh, it's been reciprocated properly, I would argue. Uh, this has been fun. I know you spend time, Jose Higueras, a uh, legendary coaching figure in the sport of tennis. Palm Springs, you mentioned Idaho. Um, still teaching the game, still imparting wisdom and knowledge on the younger generations coming forward. But uh, I have to ask you, are you still a self-proclaimed cowboy at all? Because I know well, that was part of your well, bio for, as well. A frustrated cowboy. <laughs> Obviously, I, I love the country. I mean, I love the animals. I love the land. That's basically... Uh, so, uh, and I love horses, obviously, horses and dogs and cats and anything that, that has four legs. So, so um, that's my passion, you know. Now I have, uh, I, have a, I have a granddaughter and another grandson on the way. So my priorities are kind of uh, changing quite a bit, but, uh, but a great time of my life. And, uh, and I'm th- thankful to be here. Well, this has been a blast. Jose Higueras, uh, one of the best coaches that tennis has seen. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for coming on Tennis Channel Insight. And it was a pleasure. We'll have to do this again. Uh, best of luck with everything. And, uh, you know, keep teaching and keep inspiring uh, future generations of tennis players. Yeah, thank you, Mitch. Anytime. And a big, uh, big happy holidays and Merry Christmas to everybody that is listening. And the ones that are not. Absolutely. Or watching, too. Oh, watching. Thanks again, Jose. Okay. Free- okay. Thank you, Mitch. That's it for this week's episode of Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you so much to Jason Goodall and Jose Higueras, two outstanding guests and gentlemen who are very generous with their time. We are on all your podcast platforms. Go to Spotify, Apple, Amazon Music, iHeart, to name a few. Search Tennis Channel Inside In. The show will pop up. You can leave a rating, a review, subscribe. And when you subscribe, every episode shows up like clockwork each Thursday onto your listening device. It's that simple. So thank you so much to both Jason Goodall and Jose Higueras. We're back next week, next Thursday. You know the drill. More tennis to discuss. The Aussie Open starts a week from Saturday. We're not going to want to miss any of the drama that unfolds, and the lead-up is going to be phenomenal. Thanks to both guests. My name is Mitch Michaels. This was Tennis Channel Inside In. Thank you for listening, and I'll talk to you next week.